let's not push for a mass revolution here. I saw a Twitter feed that got me thinking about the dangers and the whole factor and this sort of romanticism around overthrowing the government that seems to be pushing in a lot of circles today. So I want to read you this little tweet feed that I saw and sort of dig deep on it and sort of look at the reality of what the sentiment is meaning and if it's applied across globally. So the first person suggests, my 19-year-old daughter is considered an essential employee. She's a fast food worker. She's exposed every day. No one give a, gives a fuck about Alan's privilege. Pampered ass stuck in her mansion. Show me Alan working on the lines at the grocery store. No mask, no gloves. Then I might care. And the response is, your daughter's a hero. And then the original poster responds back saying, no, she's a slave of capitalism. She's terrified. I'm terrified. She can't quit because she'd be homeless. She can't come home because she could infect me and her sister with comorbidities. Let's call it what it is. She's not a hero. She's a sacrifice demanded by the elites. Now, those are heavy words. And I know from people messaging me and what I'm seeing online and just the general consensus that that's a common feeling at the moment, that people are upset, they're angry at the system, they're angry at the the politics and the corruption and the issues and the fact that they're exposed to this sort of stuff, that stuff hasn't been done, the, 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 the disparity between the rich and the poor and countries and races and genders and sexes. Like it, it feels like the world is getting ready to explode. And I also see a lot of people pushing for either outright pushing for evolution, you know, overthrow the government, bring it all down, like that anarchist sort of approach, or, you know, pushing for the lead up to that. Like, let's let's destroy these systems. And a lot of their, if not all of their anger is well-founded. You know, just recently I heard the news that George Pell is released from prison and didn't get done for the, for the charges he was up for. Obviously, there's the civil cases going, but that caused a massive uproar because all the evidence weighed against him and yet he still they still didn't, didn't get a conviction and then they pushed it, suggesting that that's an act of corruption or just more of the same. Now, I'm not going to get into my personal opinion on that particular topic, but the anger around that topic is like just another extra thing, another extra little bit and people are calling for the, the you know, tear the whole Catholic Church down. I can see why you'd say that and being a victim of child abuse myself, I can very much relate to those sentiments. But what does the reality of that mean? What would the what would that practically mean? Like, it's one thing to say those words, but words can very quickly become action, you know, and that's just one example. We can we can talk about that in terms of governments, in terms of businesses, you know, overthrowing the, the government and replacing it with some sort of online voting system or, you know, fighting back against oppression or taking control of, you know, what's the, what's the phrase? Um, put, um, get, 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 you know, abolish private property, all of those sort of communistic sort of things. The problem with this is that it's, there's this sort of glorification of an ideal. There's a glorification of what it could be to become a revolutionary, to make a change, to, to destroy some sort of corruption. But unfortunately, Life and our story doesn't end when the corruption is destroyed. What happens when a system is destroyed? What happens when a system collapses? Like, a very prime example is the Middle East situation in Iraq. You know, given, you know, the false pretense of weapons of mass destruction, 
soldiers go in and topple a government. And then they discover that, okay, well, that guy was a terrible person. You know, Saddam Hussein and his leadership was disgustingly atrocious. But they were holding back a greater evil. And when we took down that government, when we destroyed the badness, something worse took its place. Chaos and then organized evil. And, you know, the same thing happens with revolutionary changes everywhere. I would love, I'd love for a situation to change in which things just worked out well and it was bloodless. But I don't see that being a possibility. I don't see mass change happening without dire consequences. But I see a lot of people online, you know, just general, normal, regular people talking with this sort of vitriol and rhetoric and pushing. And understandably so, but that scares me. It scares me to my core because if enough people start pushing, stuff changes. It's very easy to think that history stopped or that we're not a part of history or that, you know, you can look back upon the revolutions of the past and sort of we're detached from it because we're in the future. We've got, you know, phones and technology and all of this sort of stuff. But look at the trends. Look at what's happening. Look at history and how it happened and how it unfolded. And you realize that people get inspired by ideas. They get inspired by words. They they get taken by strong, charismatic leaders. And then people die. Then things happen. And, you know, I don't mean to sort of be this sort of doom, doom bringer, but it's just, it's tough, you know, it's tough to, 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 to sit back and just watch this happening. Because the thing is, upon every single little issue that everyone's having, I can relate. I can definitely agree with the person from this, this post. You know, there is this general feeling that, you know, we can't escape the rat race, that we're forced to survive. We're first to, forced to be on the line. We're first to work because otherwise we lose our jobs. If we lose our jobs, we can't pay our rent. We can't pay our rent. We can't pay our food. We literally get homeless and we die. That sounds terrifying. And and obviously, you know, different countries have different safety nets and all of that sort of stuff. But the sentiment is spreading, you know, and if it's not the sentiment about this, it's about border control. It's about, you know, like, like controlling regulations. It's about different rights. It's about religious freedoms. It's about whatever. I can't help but feel that given the amount of freedom we have to suggest and to push and to develop a following online and to get people to listen to us and just share and yell and scream our opinions out there, that this general discontent may cause a anarchist-style revolution in which things are just teared down willy-nilly. Slow reform isn't sexy, but it won't cost as many lives. I, I, I'm looking at the whole the way the world is responding to the coronavirus, and it's it's interesting because we're seeing gaps and holes in systems and in structures. A lot of my listeners are from America, and I'm so desperately worried for that whole country because you know you see a lot of really rich people and a vast 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 underclass of poor people you know looking at the stats it was something like 30 percent of americans are living you know hand to mouth they don't have any savings another third are in debt right or another like something something along the lines of the you know more than half of americans have less than 400 dollars of savings and given the healthcare system and all of that stuff over there they don't have insurance, they don't have the money to pay for, for, for any sort of ability to treat themselves. I compare that to Australia, that if I get sick, I just go for free to my doctor. 
and it's paid for. The government pays for it. Obviously, it's a different government, different systems, different values. But we and we obviously here would pay more tax to cover that. But it, it it's a safety net. I can't help but worry that extreme capitalism is, you know, that you see presented in America isn't necessarily the right answer, right? You know, it, it sort of felt like with the fall of communism, you know, communism versus capitalism, capitalism won. Well, well, yeah, they won against communism, but it doesn't mean that capitalism is the right answer. Not straight, not pure capitalism. Perhaps we need to find some sort of balance where there's more government intervention, more research. I was listening to a podcast with uh, on the Sam Harris Waking Up podcast, Common Sense podcast. Not sure what it, anyway, the Sam Harris podcast, and he was saying that there's no real incentive for big businesses to put the millions and billions of dollars in preventative cures for something like a coronavirus, because let's say they spend all that money, they fix the problem, they don't get financially rewarded for it, so they don't do it. In the same way, there's no financial incentive for big businesses to stockpile stuff. They want to get as lean as possible, so they don't stockpile. They put things... They have, you know, just in, just out, you know, just in time uh, supply chains and they have them from the cheapest place, right? So then you find that all of your supply chains are coming from the same place, China, India, those sort of things, and they're arriving just in time with no surplus. It's great during times of peace and prosperity and not crisis, but when something like this happens, everything gets disrupted. I, You know, the, that podcaster was the... Um, he was talking to a, a general and the general's assistant. Basically, they were saying the the analogy that you know even the U.S. military gets its medical supplies from China, so they're still knocked out just as badly. You know, and imagine like outsourcing your bullet production to a potential enemy nation. That sounds a little bit silly, and yet that's what's happening, all for the sake of profiteering and grinding out that you know that, that those little eking those little percentage points. The problem is, is that I don't see an alternate solution because given the way the world is currently set up, it, it, it benefits people and organizations in the short term to be selfish, in the short term to, to, to cut all those corners and do all of those things. And, you know, fair enough. That's, that's, you know, the incentive system. You know, if you say you're going to get $10 if you do this, a lot of people are going to do that thing. But the problem is, it goes down to this like idea of um, the problem of the commons. We are all living in together in the same world, right? The actions of people in China and America impact me in Australia, just as my 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 actions over here will impact you in you know the United Kingdom or India or wherever, right? Why? Well, I consume a lot of stuff, and also I'm projecting my opinion, and I can be a character character <laughs> a carrier for a virus, right? We're we're all interconnected here. But we don't. We're not acting like that as a species. We are. We're a collective species on, a, on on one place. But we're acting like from little personal silos. That approach might have worked in the past, when you know you could live in one country and not even know of the existence of another country. But we're long past that. I can talk to people in another country in real time now. The pollution I make impacts people across the world. The actions, my buying choices, all of that stuff impacts everyone else. So we're completely interconnected, but we're not acting like that. Add to that the stress of a massive underclass of the world with not much money to survive, to be able to to, to provide necessary health care and just basic food, basic 
basic doctoring, all that sort of stuff in supposedly rich and wealthy countries. It's a recipe for disaster and it scares me. The, the only way that I can see through this is that we all individually in our own personal lives try and take a step back and detach and, and start looking at things from a more global perspective. There's an approach that I've been looking at um, from, it's a form of meditation actually called the, the, the headless way. And, and one of the, the, the ideas of this is looking at who you are from different different levels. So you're seeing me, if you're watching the video, or you're hearing my voice, but you're seeing me from that sort of, you know, three to six feet approach. You see my body. But if you come up super close, I'm no longer a body, I'm skin. Come up closer, I'm, you know, cells. Come up closer, I'm atoms. And if you step further back from me, I'm no longer a person, I'm a family unit, I'm a country, I'm a world, I'm a solar system right? Suggesting things like, well, I need my heart to survive just as much as I need the sun to survive, right? And you can look at a person from different levels, different different distances, and see that they're just as much, like it's just as much of them. I'm as much of my community as my cells are me. The, the, the exactness, the meanness is a lot more broader than just me at six feet. We've all got this feeling that we stop where our skin stops. But even me saying these words to this microphone and you listening to them shows that I don't stop there. My thoughts are in your brain right now, okay? And no matter what you do, you can't unhear them. So that means that I'm extending beyond my physical self, okay? When you connect back to me, you're extending back. We're all connected here and we're far more bigger than just where our skin ends. If we can start having a more global approach and looking at us as a collective species, as opposed to individuals with individual goals, it would be far greater. Now, I'm not I'm not talking about devolving into communism, right? Because communism doesn't work. And the reason it doesn't work is that centralized command, centralized structures for every decision makes no sense because the people at the top can't possibly understand the reality on the ground. You know, my reality will be different to your reality because we live in different areas. We have different personal problems, different environments, different cultures, all of that sort of stuff. Okay, I'm suggesting a more nuanced approach. And I, 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 I thrive on people that, that go deep into the nuance. If you haven't already, check out Dan Carlin's Common Sense podcast because he goes deep in the nuance rather than sort of going left ring, white ring or me. There's a lot of nuance there. The problem is, is that nuance isn't sexy. Nuance takes a while to get across, but it's what can save us because there's going to be, you know, a lot of complex interconnected problems that the only way we can get through this is to talk it through. If we talk about, you know, if we talk about this stuff in tweets and in sound bites and all of this stuff, we get, you know, how can we express our displeasure like these people, these people are talking about in the initial tweet? you know, in, in, in such a short amount, you know, 240 characters or whatever, how can we possibly have a in-depth communication about the reality of the situation? You know, <laughs> we get the sentiment across, we get that emotionality, that anger, but we don't get any deeper level of healing and health and, and connection or anything like that. And if we just keep inspiring and stoking and pushing that anger, it'll spread. I've had this realization that we are predominantly emotional as humans, as creatures. And that emotionality pushes us to take actions. And then we want to be rational. So we rationally justify our actions after the fact. 
and that leads to some, you know, us digging ground and putting a foot in the ground and saying, this is what I believe, and sort of back-end justifying it. But when you step back from all of that or someone external sees you, they can see how ridiculous that whole situation is. The problem is, is that we're all emotional and we're exposed to others' emotions with our own emotions. If we can just step back, detach, and try and think a little bit more rationally and not have such an ego involvement in every decision and listen and talk, perhaps we'll come to better conclusions. I want to leave you with the idea that, you know, given the times that we're in, let's be open, let's talk, let's communicate, and be willing to consider that we may be wrong with our initial opinions and have a calm, connected, collective discussion about a way through as opposed to just yelling at each other. If I tell you your opinion's wrong, you get defensive and you tell me my opinion's wrong and we're arguing. If we can just talk and say, hey, I'm not quite sure what you mean by that. Let's discuss. And then they say stuff back and you go, and you actually consider that they could be right. You know, it doesn't cost you anything. You might actually learn something. It's very easy to think we're right all the time and you're wrong all the time. But if I think I'm right all the time and you're thinking you're right all the time, one of us is wrong, at least, maybe both, right? You know, you know if, if I think someone else is wrong, there's, it's just the next logical step to consider, could I be wrong also? That's where we need to start sitting. And that way we can start talking about stuff because the alternative is, is that we devolve into a anarchist <laughs> revolution that will not be pretty. You know, like, like if you think the problems we've got in the world now are bad, wait until there's no police, no fire brigades, supply chains that are, you know, completely localized, right? Think about the amount of stuff that you'll have to eat. Think about the, the, the water flowing to your house. Think about toilets flushing. Think about toilet paper, right? <laughs> if we tear it all down, we're tearing everything down, not just the bad stuff. So let's talk. And let's listen, please.